beautiful to see you all here uh, this evening, and we'll get started with our first question. Okay, this one really excites me. I hope it excites everybody else. Rabbi Lepatsky, who was the rabbi who most shaped your thinking, and what is one thing you can share with us about him? So, it's, it's a difficult question because, as Ari Feldman mentioned before, I was privileged to be around many big people, and there are obviously each one, there was another area in which I learned a lot, but I, I want to actually um, continue on a, on a thought that Rabbi Feldman had introduced. I, my, my years of learning were in the Mir Yeshiva. That was the yeshiva where I came to be, basically, my formative years and the years afterwards. And there was a lot to learn from many people. But the yeshiva had a ruach, something that transcended any one person, and talking specifically about attitudes in life, attitudes in understanding, in reacting, many, many aspects that I didn't even notice as we were growing up that seeped in. Many things I didn't understand. Chazal say it takes 40 years till you understand your Rebbe, and I can honestly say that, um, that understanding what it was that, how to describe exactly their ruach, their reactions, took me a, a lifetime. My father was a kind of rocha, and I, maybe we'll, I'll, I'll speak about that a moment. My father-in-law was an extraordinarily hidden person, not in the sense that we... Uh, my father-in-law was a Binyam Benish Finkel. He was the son of the founder of the Mir Shalayim, Rabbi Zuda Finkel, who had made the Mir in Europe what it was. He, he was his son, and he was a Rosh Hashiva from... Um, from when Chaim Shavuos was Nifta until about 1990, and when he was Nifta. So I would say it was, he was a person who was extraordinarily friendly, warm, engaging, and you never knew what he was thinking. He never spoke about himself. He never, he, he spoke to you, and the way you spoke, that was his response. It took a long time for me to understand um, what are his points and where he's coming from. And I want to, out of, out of a, a myriad of, of, of different things, I want to pick one thing. When you started getting heated and talking about something, and this and this and that, he would say, so how do you know? And we have well, everybody knows that. Great. Where do they know it from? And, and it was frustrating because he would never get baited. And it forced you to ask yourself, are you caught up with emotions? And it's easy to just light, put a, a, a match to the emotions? Or is there a thinking process? The effects? And, and it, as a young person, where naturally you're kind of very, very uh, animated and heated, it would, it would be frustrating. And, and slowly, it sort of, you know, it began to, to shape me. It was, and, and as I grew older, 
the mirror in general was a place where they kept emotions in check and Seichel was meant to hold rein and to direct. And as a young person, when you're all hepped up and you want action and this and that, and the mirror was always, who says? Think of the consequences. What about this? It was frustrating. And as we got older, and we realized how many people and places misstep because their, their emotions come first, and then the, and, and then the seichel comes. Along this line, I'll finish with a thought of someone else who was also a big influence in, in later years. His name was Reb Zelig Epstein. He was a Mira Talmud, and he was a very big Talmud Chacham. He, had a, he was a Rashiva Torah Das many years, and then Shara Torah was, his, was the Yeshiva that he opened up. He, he, we went to him when we looked for advice and understanding. And there was one particular case when we were upset about a certain thing that had happened with a Talmud of ours, it's, it's whatever. And there were important, there were Chashua people involved in it, and we, did, we couldn't understand how people could act in a certain way. And he told us, I know these people, and they are good people. But when you let the emotions go first and Seichel follows along, it's always destructive. And, 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 this, and, it, and I think in a certain sense, when I look back and reflect, that was very much the mirror approach to things. It, it's, it was, emotions are important, but Seichel should direct where they are and, and, and what direction, how much, and so on. That, that I think is sort of a, a reflection back on many, many years of, of a Shemesh Tremechachamim in a big picture. We'll take the next question. So these questions, um, you know, we, we put out an email asking for submissions. So um, these que- I'm reading your words. So if you don't like them, you know who to blame. Here is the next question on this list. It says as follows. Um, Most of us have been fairly glued to the news in Israel. And we try to feel the emotions of sadness and pain of our brothers and sisters there. Personally, I find that if I don't check the news often, I'm more productive focused, and happier. I'm able to be more present at work and with my family, but if I haven't checked the news in a while, I also feel a sense of guilt that I'm not with my family in Israel, and I feel out of it, in quotations. Very well-written question, by the way. What does the Rosh Hashiva recommend as a healthy way of living our lives in the current matzav while staying in touch with what's going on? So I think this, this, this reflects very much on what we spoke about just now. Let's, um, let's take an analogy. Somebody that we know well or somebody we're close to is going through a very hard tkufa, their illness, other stresses and strains. Imagine a friend of theirs is um, kind of greets them, meets them, never asks about it, never talks about it, never shows any sign of commiserating. So the reaction will be, hello, um, I'm going through something very tough. Um, you, you might express that you understand my pain and so on. And we would expect it, rightfully so. But if someone told us, you know, 
I'm, I'm, I feel so bad about you that I don't do anything all day long, but just sit and commiserate. So that you would gently suggest, you would thank them for it, and gently suggest that they find other things to do also. We have to think of this rationally. Being noticeable is a very important point. But I have obligations, responsibilities. Um, whether it's the work I do is a responsibility, whether it's the time with the family, whether it's the learning time, whether it's the davening time. We're not supposed to have time to waste. So a person makes a reasonable uh, um, suggestion to himself, I should once a day check the news and then say to Hillam or, or, or think about the people and so on. That's appropriate. So a person can decide twice a day, once in every two days, whatever it is you decide, but Seichel decides how much should Nozabaol take part and something not. Checking the news every day is not helping anybody else, and it's taking away your time. You should, our time should be accounted for. We shouldn't have time to waste. So once we make a decision, how much is appropriate, stick to the decision, and, and make the rest of the day as productive as, as can be, because that's what we're here for, to do what we're supposed to do. Continuing on that vein, because it's obviously this whole situation in Israel is very much in our minds, perhaps emotionally and not intellectually, um, but definitely is um, weighing on all of us. Considering the situation in Israel, do you think we should try to gather all from Jews together for days of tefillah and fasting, so that people take off work and literally spend the whole day dominating? Yes or no? <laughs> it depends on the context. There's an opening in the university. But, but it's a very short-lived tenure. The, um, so let's talk about this also. It sounds grand and astounding that we gather everybody up and everybody will come in with a bus and a plane and a car and they'll make it in, I don't know where, and, and so on and so forth. It's, it's, I think part of it has to do with sort of, uh, um, what, what should I say? Uh, it's, it's, we're living in an age of production and it sounds like a grand production. A, I think something like this is much more effectively done communally um, like we spoke before, it, it's obviously logistically the appropriate thing is community come together, and one needs to keep the balance. The reason why we don't do it is not so much because um, we we don't want to take off time from work. It's really hard for a person to daven all day long and to say till all day long and so on. It, it's not easy. So when the Torah mandates it, Tisha we have to fast and say kinnis. Whether you like it or not, that's the takana, and that's what we do. Yom Kippur, we dab all day, we fast. That's what Halakha says, and our job is to make it as meaningful as possible. But when we're planning events that 
don't have a, a, a clear halachic description, planning it in a way that we maximize it and it doesn't become a guilty burden. I should be, like, you know, I, I can't say 10 capital tillum, 20 capital tillum, but how could you not say? I mean, those people are, are in, in, in Aza being shot on and you can't say 20 capital tillum. It's a, it's a kind of logical argument, but it's not real. And I think so communally doing things is by far more preferable and doing things that people can, can give it their all. It's not that anyone doesn't want all that's good for our brothers and sisters Israel. But we just have our limitations of how much Tehillim we can say with Kavana, how much, what we can do for a long period of time and, and it not become just numbing and, 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 and listless. So part of the leadership is to figure out the right type of activities um, that will keep people focused in terms of the davening, the Maisim Tovim they're doing, and things like that, and keep reminding us that Avachainu Reis Yisrael. So doing communally, I think, is much more effective, and doing it not with this grand thing, yes, in the Megillah it says three days and three nights they fast and that. It was a different world, different people, different times. We need to make decisions. That's why there's communal leaders like Baruch Hashem, where you can gauge what's an appropriate ruchnis tikkestadlus and and carry it out. To the left. To the left. I think that question was just put back on us. <laughs> um, another question here at random. <clears throat> um, this is very open-ended. And by the way, the Shiva has not seen or heard any of these questions. I'm reading them, some of them now for the first time as well. Um, it is pretty open-ended, and it can go in many different directions. But the question is, what is the biggest issue facing American orthodoxy today, and what can we do to help? I, I don't want to sound uh, cutesy, but the biggest issue that's facing us is that we don't have an issue. And I'll explain what I mean. Difficult times bring out strength. When you do a workout, you lift something that's not easy for you to lift, and you do it enough times that you're kind of tired and it's difficult, and that builds muscles. Um, For instance, when I was growing up, orthodoxy was on the way. It was, shuls were becoming not... Orthodox schools were becoming conservative. And when I was going to school, less kids left the school religious than came in. That was the, that was the, the, the situation. And whatever happened um, was an incredible miracle. But those of us, for us, learning, keeping mitzvahs and so on was a battle. It was people sitting and learning in Kola was unheard of about. And anyone who did faced a lot of pressure not to do it. And therefore, people who did it were extremely motivated. There was, there was tangible motivation. There was nobody sitting in a yeshiva because, quote unquote, they had to. They were sitting in yeshiva because they wanted to and wanted to enough 
to face down public pressure, family pressure, and so on. A very, very Hashem Rav told me recently, it's an incredible story, it, it, it sounds made up, except that the person told the story himself, this person is an incredibly Hashem Rav today, and he told me, when I was a Bacher, I went to Torvadas High School with other boys, and the usual was when you finished high school, you learned part of the day, you went to Brooklyn College part of the day, you took accounting, and after a few years, you had smicha, you had a degree in accounting, you got married, and you were a, a, somebody who was in the world of professions from person. That was the norm. He bucked the tide, he bucked the trend, and he went to Lakewood to learn. He said a few years later, two, three years later, he met one of his old friends from the high school. And this person told him in a sincerely admiring way, he says, you know, I really have respect for you. Because we both know that if you're in Lakewood, the type of shirk you're then up with is third rate. And you're doing it because you have real hakara fatora. Who's going to want to marry a boy that has no degree and wants to do something in learning? So it's obviously going to be somebody that's not top. And you're doing it still because someone's was there. That's what it was like. This person is a few years older than me. So people who, who learned did it for real. People kept mitzvahs. It wasn't today where people are sensitive, politically correct, and diverse, and if you're sure, if you keep in kosher, that's, that adds diversity, and we respect traditions, and on and on and on. That wasn't the language that was used in my days. You know, the, it, it, about, so if, if, you, if you kept kosher or Shabbos, there was almost no accommodation. Let me, let me repeat a story that, um, I'll, I'll tell you this, who it is. There was a person who was nifted a few years ago, Rabbi Hirth. He was the head of, of the institutions in Passaic. He built a magnificent set of institutions. He's part of an extraordinary family of very Hashem Torah. His parents lived on the Lower East Side, where I grew up. His parents were not learned people, but very Erlicha people, very from Erlicha people. They were well-to-do by those standards, and they were the first ones to put up institutions. They put up a Beis Yaakov in Borough Park, they put, they, I think the Beis Yaakov in, in Lower East Side they may have put up. The Hearth family was official, Yechiel Hearth, Zechon and Vracha, were big guys. So I, I bumped into, into uh, Heshi Hearth from, from Seik, and he told me a story that I, never, I, was, I was a kid I grew up, he said his parents, his father and, and his father's brother, the two brothers, were Yusomim. They, 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 they lost their father at a very young age, and they worked supporting the family, the, his mother and the other kids. They would, every Friday, they would lose their job because they didn't come for Shabbos. They, they were Shomer Shabbos from the rear families. And he wouldn't come home, and uh, they would come home, and they would, Monday they have to look for another job because if they didn't have a job, there would be no food to eat. One Friday morning, they came, they, or one Thursday night, they came back from work and they were very happy. They said, they told their mother, Mother, Baruch Hashem, everything's okay now. Said, what happened? Said, we have to show up for Shabbos 
but we don't have to do any real malach daraisa. We just have to be in the basement schlepping boxes, but everything, we're, we're okay. Their mother looked at them in the eye and said, Kindalach, candlelighting is 4.30. Anyone who's in the house is part of the family. Anyone who's not there by 4.30 should never step foot in the house again. There was an almana with a family to support. That's when Shabbos means something. That's when learning means something. That's when all these things mean something. Affording a little of an asterisk when I was young, it, it was an expense. You couldn't afford for every kid. So you went and the love and was so nice. So when times are challenging, unfortunately, a lot of people fall off, obviously. That to keep that level of, of, of Mr. Snaps for Shabbos is incredible. That level of Mr. Snaps for learning. But the people there are very, very committed. It, it's a commitment that came out of, um, out of a, uh, an understanding, out of a decision, and against all odds. Baruch Hashem, we're not complaining. The tide has turned. But things are easy. And the question is, how do we build muscles? We all know that when you drive every place you go and, 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 and you never do anything to, and the food gets delivered to your house and everything gets put in your mouth, you become flabby. And that's just as unhealthy as, as, as starving. It's the same thing, just a question, which disease? It's a, it's a problem. So we don't want Chas Vashon to relive those challenges, but we need to find ways where Yeshiva challenges a child. Today, it used to be rough. You know, the educational system was rough, and that was an issue. We've become kind, nice, but we're afraid of challenging. How to, how to make an educational model where a child feels wanted, welcomed, respected, and yet expected to roll up sleeves and work and suffer some problems occasionally. You fail a test occasionally. You, you have to sweat more than you expect. That balance is, is, is challenging because when there's no challenge and everything is just rote and easy, it, it's, it, it, that itself starts becoming, it, it's, it's self-defeating. I'm sure you, you have some stories from your father about what orthodoxy looked like a few years ago. You can read it in a book or two. <laughs> I'm feeling a little bit offended by what you just said, and I can't recover enough to ask another question. <laughs> <laughs> I hate to change the topic, because it's a, it seems to me to be a very important and timely topic. Let me move on to something. I want to make sure that people who submitted questions get their questions answered. So what's an appropriate hishtadlus for, for us when it comes to countering anti-Semitism? What's our responsibility? What, what, is, what, is it, what should we be doing? What's God want from us? It, it, it's a very big question. It's been plaguing us for 2,000 years, if maybe even more. Um, if you read some of... I have a book at home. It has some of the Hellenist, not in the Hanukkah context, I mean Hellenist meaning the Greek period, anti-Semitic works, Roman anti-Semitic works. Anti-Semitism has been around forever. And 
um, you can say 101 as far as why. I personally don't think educating the world is gonna make all that much of a difference. It's helpful. I think it's deeply rooted for many reasons. The things that we can do, so obviously the people who have the means to publicize things and explain things, it's, it's of some help. There are people that, obviously, if you just give up on the PR war, it's going to, um, you know, it, it's, it's, it's going to be very bad. So it, continuing to publish and publicize, it's helpful to some degree. Most people who are really have deep-seated hatreds that have been triggered by something are not going to, um, are, are not going to read or listen or care. You tell them this happened, they said it's not true. You've been poisoned by the Zionist propaganda. What do you, what do, you do? There's, there's no way around it. It's not logic doesn't drive people. The one area, so whatever comes from Hashem, however that is, that is. But we need to ask ourselves, have our actions ever given someone cause to be irritated with us? Yes, it's true we're being held to different standards. So if somebody thinks that I moved out of line, I, I, I myself am, am, I, I'm, I'm sensitive sometimes in the airport when whatever seat assignment I have, if I come late and they say, oh, you go to the head of line and, and go straight in or something, I'm always kind of uncomfortable. Why should they, you know, are people gonna think I just pushed my way to the top because Jews are pushy? And I always try to tip as well, you know, in the cab or whatever it is, in the in Uber, because I always feel, is somebody going to think not well? Am I overreacting? I don't know. But I think thinking twice, could, did we cause any of it? Are we causing any of it? Being super careful, and, and it's, it's not enough to say, well, it's fear. For whatever reason, triggering people's animosity, for, for, for better or for worse, we are better off in many ways and people around us, and there's a built-in dislike. So giving cause that a person feels miffed, cheated, uh, whatever was, uh, whatever, Jude, um, is, is, it's, it's wrong, everything's fine. We need not to provoke. And I also wonder sometimes when we battle for all sorts of rights that are minor, we have to choose our battles, what's important and what's not. Um, is it, is, are, are we at fault? No. But I once said a marshal, he said somebody was once standing in, a, in, a, in the middle of the town and he was waving a red shmata in front of a, a, an ox who was running wild. And someone says to him, Shugna, what are you doing? He says, this ox has a serious anger management problem. And I'm the Meshuggah? So, it, it, yes, he's a terrible anti-Semite, snap. Okay, now should I wait for Red Shmata? Who's the Meshuggah? In other words, we have to think, yes, that person is who he is, and it's not going to help terribly much that I'm logical, whatever it is. I need to think and ask, how do I provoke less? It has to be thought out coolly, not trying to be right, but trying to be smart and recognize the fact that there are a core of people that have a, a, a raging hatred for whatever reason, and there are people that can be triggered. And thinking smart, 
how to keep it cool is, is the only shtavas I can think of. <clears throat> Next question here, um, another going back to a broader question about America. It reads as follows. As America becomes increasingly tolerant of divergent lifestyles and ideals that are antithetical to Torah, it becomes more difficult to be comfortable living here and raising our children here. At the same time, Israel is not necessarily a practical option. How can we approach this? Well, there are thoughts of settling the moon and Mars, so we can try about that. I think we need, if, we need to be realistic about the world around. And just like you explain to children about different religions, and you do it in a way we matter of fact, explain this, what these people believe in, this is why they're that, and when you see this symbol, that symbol, that's what it is. We're going to have to start explaining to our children about the world around us, and explain it in ways why, Baruch Hashem, we have a Torah that gave us Kedusha, that gave us a, a clear clarity of thought, and, and dignity, and, and beauty. We, we, you can't keep hiding what can't be hidden. So those issues, people ask, what should I expose my child to? So my response is, it's, it's, it's very similar to something medical. Uh, nobody in America in their right mind would vaccinate for, I don't know, yellow fever. But if you're taking a trip to the Caribbean or wherever it is that they demand, then you better get a vaccination. Be so, because you say to yourself, listen, in America, there are no cases of it, so why should I take whatever slight risk there is? doesn't make any sense. If I'm going to a place where it's rampant, of course I have to do it. Exposing our children, we have to ask ourselves, what do I think they will encounter in their future? In their future, further down the pike, and so on. Those things that they may never encounter, probably, whatever it is, I don't have to explain to them why we don't believe in Hinduism. I don't have to sit down and explain what Hinduism is and why we don't believe in it. Because it's not relevant. But I do have to explain Christianity. It's around us and explain it in a way where they have an understanding and understanding why we're different. And, and without emotion, just they should understand it. The same thing is true about other things. So if there are things that we feel at this point it's so pervasive that he will encounter it, he or she will encounter it, then we have to talk about it and explain why Ashrenu Matov Chalkeinu, that we're in a different place because of Torah. And that's, what, that, that's I think, far better than trying to hide from something that you can't hide from. Let me just push you a little bit on that. Um, in this I'm world, going to be sensitive now, and I'm going to yeah. get resulted. Yeah. We have safe spaces for you to handle. <laughs> <laughs> I've been looking for them. I haven't found them. The, uh, the, the people in this room, and, and I, talk, I talk to people about this all the time, who have relatives who are transgender, who have aunts who have become uncles, uncles who become aunts, and they expect to be referred to that way. And they expect to be invited to Thanksgiving and to the Shabbos and whatever it is, and they expect to be treated that way. What does an Orthodox person with Orthodox sensibilities do in those situations? These are extraordinarily tough questions. I, I really, I agree with Jeremy Feldman that the question is very tough. And there is no easy answer. And I, I want to explain something. 
you are not allowed to acknowledge something that's wrong as right. And that's one side of it. On the other side, you also have to be able to live with people. You know, you have a family, you have a society, you have coworkers and, and so on. It's a very delicate road. And some things, for instance, when people ask about what pronoun to refer to, it's, it's a, the name and the pronoun is a person's choice. I, that doesn't say anything. Um, if we have a close relative, then we need to sit down with our children and speak about it and explain um, that this person, unfortunately, doesn't know Torah. This person has made personal choices that he thinks is right. We, we treat the person nicely because the person uh, means very well, but we know the truth of the Torah, and unfortunately, maybe someday the person recognizes the truth. Some not along those lines. It's, it's true about, um, you know, when it when, used to be when we had relatives who were not religious, and they would, let's say, drive in on Shabbos, whatever. You have to find a way to tell children, on the one hand, that you're not condemning a person. People act out of mistake, out of misbelief, and you want to be able to say what's right. It's, a, it's, it's a really a case-by-case, instance-by-instance. You know, when is the line of acknowledging wrong in, in absolutely no uncertain ways as right, which you're not allowed to do, and when is it finding a diplomatic way to be with people you need to be with? Close family is very important. Family is very important. And finding the right way to, to express acceptance of the person while rejecting the person's understanding his decisions is, is, is a real challenge. But that's the only way to go. Got it. Got it. That didn't count as my question before. That was just a follow-up. Um, let me ask a sensitive question, something I've struggled with and I think any person in the Orthodox community struggles with. Um, I believe firmly in the notion of Das Torah. I seek Das Torah. I've guided my life by Das Torah, which is uh, as formulated and expressed by Tamir Chachamim, by Rashi Yeshiva, leaders of our generation. There are things that are, that are sometimes stated that make no sense to me or are counterproductive. How should a simple Jew like me deal with what I consider in my arrogance to be a counterproductive statement? How do I deal with that when it comes from rabbis that I want to trust and follow 100%? So this is so a few points that are important to bear in mind. A, Das Torah is not one particular das. A das Torah is a way of describing a person who makes decisions that have moral um, components to it. Should I do this? Let's, let's go back to the question before. I have to deal with a close relative who's done X, Y, Z. How do I deal with it? There is no clear answer, but a per, but. That story means I ask somebody who I feel is Talmud Chacham enough and understands the situation enough where his opinion 
is, is, is an is a opinion based on the person's Torah. Just like a halacha, when a person paskins, it's based on his Torah knowledge and his, his skills at extrapolating from one case to another case. We're talking here about a more general issue where it's something that doesn't have a clear halacha, but is certainly um, it, is, 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 is clashing with Torah values, and we have to know how to do it. So there are room for different opinions, all of them equally valid as in halacha. However, just like in halacha, we can't, we have to follow a certain line. A person can't pick and choose the easiest psakim, the hardest psakim. It, it's, it's, let's say, a mardasra in a community. A general, if, if, if you're a chassid, you go to the mikveh every day, you put on a gartel. These are, these are the anhagas, appropriate anhagas for someone who's a chassid, and so on. So in Das Torah also, a person or community takes on themselves, this is the derech that fits me. And that defines different chassidus, different yeshivas, different approaches to, to life. As long as the person heading it or the people heading it are tamirechacham of stature and people who are emis, then that is das Torah. That's point one. Point two is part of the reason why we ask is because we don't always trust our own judgment. A, a person who doesn't, a person who is, um, you know, who's not, who's, who's not knowledgeable is somebody who certainly should make that decision. But even a person who's knowledgeable, if it's a very big decision, he's going to run it by somebody, maybe I got it wrong. Now let's take an analogy to it. I have a doctor. He's the family doctor. I've trusted him for the longest of times. And at one time, he tells me advice that's counterintuitive. I don't chuck him for that because the reason why I look up to the person is because I think he's more knowledgeable than I am. And even if it seems counterintuitive, I might as well explain it, but I'll take it. If it starts becoming, if everything is as counterintuitive to me, I'll say, you know what? He may know more than me, but the direction that he's headed in is not the direction that I'm comfortable with. And I want to choose somebody that I feel comfortable with the direction. So if a person um, is, if, if a person is told once or twice, the person that he normally asks his opinion, he's told once or twice, then he has to choke it up to his own lack of understanding and keep going. That's the point of it. The point of asking was because I don't trust my judgment. If as a pattern, I just don't feel that this is where I click in, so just like a person makes a decision if he should be a chassid or, or, or misnagit, or not a misnagit, we'll call it a, a litvak, whatever you want to call it. And a person makes a decision, is this type of world my world or this type of world? Is this type of chassid is my world or not? Those decisions are based on what you feel your natural personality and character is drawn to. So the person has to be, the person in the movement have to be based on real Talmud Chacham, Real Yerushalayim, but the differences are there because they're different people. Chaznish writes in a place, someone asked him, should he follow the Derech the, Halimud the, the that the Balatanya writes in his Shoharach? 
And the Chazish told him, if your Sherish Neshama is there, the root of your soul is there, then you should. So Rabbi Chaim explained, the root of soul means where you feel you thrive and click in. And that's how we choose a derech. So if we choose a derech just because it's the easiest, then we're not looking for the truth. But if, but if many drachim, each one has something else that challenges the most and brings out, wherever you fit in, that's where you belong. And same with Das Torah. A person where everything that you think, the person thinks differently and can make sense of it, then, then you need to find a place where you feel it is clicking. But we, we, we relish that story for those places where someone says something that's counterintuitive. That's why we go to a, a doctor, we go to a big specialist, not in anticipation they'll say what we want to hear, but they'll say something that sort of is based on, on, on their knowledge and their opinion and so on. Two more questions? Yeah, I think so. Okay. Okay, well, we have time for uh, two more questions. So I'll ask, uh, I'll ask uh, the next one. Well, let's move from the, um, the, from the big picture to the smaller picture. This is, is, these are two personal questions I'm just going to loop together, meaning personal dealing with daily life. So the, the two questions are as follows. The first one reads, I feel like my Judaism is skin deep at best. How do I internalize it and make it real so that I want to do it? And the second question, which I think is related, is can you give a few suggestions of how to infuse our children with an excitement and passion for Yiddishkeit? Throw this one in And number three, I am always longing for my seminary years. I don't feel the same connection or inspiration that I once had. How can I get it back? You can pay $35,000 and go there to show for a year. That, that's a, it's a great way to do it. And, uh, <laughs> um, so I, I guess the, the, all th- the common denominator is inspiration and depth of feeling. So it's, it, a, it, a, lot of, a lot of it depends on your younger years. For, for a person starting later, in many ways, we don't have the time to devote. But when we're younger, we do have the time. That's the seminar he has. So most people, first of all, we, we just spoke about the different drachim, different ways. In the big picture, different personalities connect to different things. There are many of us, and this is seen as being the premier way, where when you're in a real yeshiva setting and you're sweating away on a sugya day in, day out, when, when you sort of have squeezed yourself totally, you feel an extraordinary acceleration in the learning. For most anyone who was in a yeshiva and the experience was positive, the acceleration was from the intense learning. And that's why our yeshivas are by and large focused on that experience that works for I would say most of us, and for a long time. There are people who are much more emotional, less cerebral, and an intense davening, as can be experienced in a very powerful chassidish place, tends to be something that gives them a, a, a very strong sense of connection. There are people who are real doers, 
and and waking up at all times night to take an emergency call and running down and and till, till you sort of you really exhaust yourself doing it for some people that provides it so there are different things that provide it but the common denominator is it has to be an intense experience it's counterintuitive in the sense that we think if I really enjoy learning, I'll learn. If I really enjoy davening, I'll daven, and vice versa. No, it, it works like this. When you have a powerful learning experience, one of the things that's become very popular in the last few years are the yarkikalas. And it, it, it's easier, obviously, if you learn the yeshiva once, but so many people have told me they've gone back to Mir Yeshiva has a yarkikala for four days, so many people told me they went back and it was such a powerful, it was a booster shot. And, 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 and it was an amazing experience as, as grown-ups and so on. Going to a place in Yerushalayim, it was much easier. There are davenings there that are very intense and long. And if you go there, not to finish quickly, but you want to lose yourself in the davening because it's powerful. But it's Karlin, but it's Toldus Aaron. Whatever it is, if you go to a place like that and you just close everything out and just get into the words and get into it, it, it's an extraordinary powerful experience. And the same thing when you had to kill yourself to help somebody, really, really sweat it, that's when the experience becomes exhilarating. So finding A, what your Shorish Neshama is, where you would probably get the most, and two, um, you would also um, get, um, and, uh, you, by reliving it, by doing it all in, you will probably have that type of experience. In the later years, two points about this. First of all, it's like the person who never wants to use his device because he says it drains his battery. So I like to keep my battery at 100% charged. That's amazing. So the, the, the phone is 100% closed and the battery is 100% charged. It, the seminary years are there to provide, or yeshiva years are there to provide you with battery power for the years to come. Raising a family doesn't allow much time for seminary. It's, it's, it's we need to take the, the, the ideas and the resolve that we got there and expend it. And, 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 and give it to our children. So the, the attitude that we miss that intense experience, it's a beautiful, but that intense experience was in order to have um, a productive life. And it's good occasion, like we said before, to go back and to have sort of a yarkakal of sorts, an experience. So if, if you're seven years old and you're able to go there to school for a few days and spend sitting in classes, helping families, going, doing things that reconnect as a, a means of, of, of a booster, not to replace, not, oh, if only I could have sat in seminary the rest of my life. That's a very wrong attitude. We, 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 our attitude is to give it to our children, to, to give everything we have, the time, the energy, the love, the understanding. That's what it's all there for. And I, I'll, I'll, tell a, I'll, I'll tell a story about my mother-in-law, Allah Shalom, was an incredible person. I mean, so everyone knows about all the chesed that she did 24-7. She, 
she, she, you know, any medical referrals, people who needed help. It, it was just, it, it, that, was, that, that was her whole being was always, she, she's, she, you know, she's there. Besides what she did for everyone else, for the family, anytime you need it, you could pick up a phone, I need to go here, I'm dropping off my kids by you. That was reserved for grandchildren, not strangers. That was only grandchildren. Today. And they would do it. There was a very hush of a Rebetzin, a very, very hush of a person who lived in the same building as my mother, much older. My mother took care of her, gave her the medication. She was a widow at the time already in this net. This person was very bright and very sharp. And she told my mother-in-law, Rebetzin Esther, I am so in awe of all that you do. But permit me a critique also. Sure. You're so busy taking care of the kids, you have no time to sit and think deep philosophical thoughts. When do you have time to think deep philosophical thoughts? That's what this person asked. So my mother-in-law turned it around and she said, yeah, as soon as I finish taking care of my grandchildren, I'm going to sit around and think deep philosophical thoughts. I said over the story at the Shiva in the graveyard, and I said, I have now an addition to the story. Her last grandchild got married, two years didn't have a kid, finally had a child, and when the child became 30 days old, which Halakhli is considered as viable, she was nifta on that day. So I said she finished taking care of her grandchildren, and now she's... <laughs> She's ready for deep philosophical thoughts. I think it's important to realize that. Akanshpochu gave us a life that requires a lot, a lot of energy and work and effort and strength. The years, our formative years, are meant to give us the reserve for it, the, 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 the initiative for it. But the work, what it, we're supposed to use all of that. And yes, the years go back, go on, we had less time for it but we're doing what we're supposed to do.